Well, I love that we started this year with two weeks of prayer, 24-7 prayer. And I'll tell you, it's so encouraging for me when I drive in in the morning to know people have been praying in this building all night long. It was very cool. Well, my name is Mark Wiley. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you're going to find one behind a seat uh, nearby you. Grab that, open it up to John chapter 5. I want you to make sure you've got a uh, copy of God's Word in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, I want to encourage you to take that one home with you. That's our gift to you. We want you to walk out of here with a copy of God's Word. Well, we're working our way as a church through the Gospel of John. And one of the things I love about the way John wrote this is he was very clear about why he wrote this gospel. And he tells us in chapter 20, he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. And so here's John kind of late in his life when he writes this. And John has now, he spent years preaching and teaching and making disciples and building up the church. And he just has this passion that people would know that this Jesus of Nazareth, that he is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And that you're to believe in him that you might have eternal life. And now he's getting to the end of his life. And he's like, I need to write this down. And I need to be able to document of all the things that I saw Jesus do, the many things I personally witnessed him do, what, are, what am I going to include? Because I don't have enough room to include all of that. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he chooses seven miracles of Jesus to say, I'm going to document these seven because these seven are going to help to do what I want to do, which is lead people to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so... John doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. And he does that because just like any sign, they're actually pointing to something else. You see, a good sign, it gives us information, it gives us direction so that we can get to our ultimate destination. The sign is never the destination. The sign is always pointing us to the destination. And so on the outside of our church here, on the east wall, which is right behind me here, we've painted in big words, Welcome to Redeemer Bible Church. And we're just like so blessed that the Lord gave us 16 acres of land, allowed us to build this building. And here we are right off I-65, Worthsville Road exits right here, just a great location. We said, let's put our name on the side of that building to help us to differentiate this from all the the many uh, different warehouses and distribution centers that populate up and down I-65. And so several months before we even opened the building, we painted the outside and we painted those words on the side. And I remember looking at them going, this is amazing. I love this. After we painted it on there, we realized that that actually constitutes a sign as defined by the city of Greenwood. And as such, it is subject to certain regulations in terms of the size of a sign that's allowed on the side of a building. So at this point, I'm like, okay, we better go figure out the regs on this and see whether or not we've exceeded that. Turns out we did. Not just slightly, we had exceeded the size of a sign allowed on the side of a building by seven times. (laughs) So I'm like, Lord, if you want that on there, you got to go before us here. And so 
I had to then put in an appeal, write the appeal to the Board of Zoning Appeals, uh, write up our rationale why they should allow us to do this, and then I get scheduled to go before them. And so I'm on the agenda, I'm there for the meeting. Um, I'm second on the agenda. The person before me is representing a Casey's gas station convenience store, and what I watched was 30 minutes of back and forth because they wanted to put a sign up that slightly exceeded the regs. And it was back and forth, he eventually lost. I'm like, I'm dead. <laughs> I stand up, present it, three minutes takes me to tell why we think we should have that on there, and the Lord went before us, a unanimous yes, not even a single question for us. Yeah, and it's God at work, and, and, and one of the reasons I share that with you is because it is not unusual. I meet people regularly here that are visiting for the first time, that have just started coming to the church here, and I always ask, like, how'd you hear about us? And it is very common, surprisingly common, for people to say, we saw you from the interstate. I saw on the side of the, the building, welcome, and we thought, let's go try that, which, by the way, amazes me. But I'm like, Lord, you had that in mind. Now, let's imagine for a minute, a family sees the building here. They're like, hey, there's a church. Let's go visit that. And so Sunday morning comes, and they pull in to the parking lot. And it's a beautiful spring day. And they pull in, and so they oh, get out of the car, and they, they pull out some lawn chairs and a blanket, maybe a picnic basket, and they make their way over here to the east lawn right outside the building, and they, and they set up right here underneath the big sign. And they're like, wow, I just love that sign. <laughs> the next thing that's going to happen is Jim Zent is going to come in from the parking lot, and he's probably going to go, hey, guys, what are you, what are you doing here? And say, well, we just saw the sign, and we just, it's a beautiful day. We thought we'd just sit here by the sign. And Jim's going to say, I love that, but you know what? Let's pick that stuff up. Let's put it back in your car. Why don't you come inside with us? We're like, well, why? We want to come inside. Well, so the sign is great, but the sign is simply telling you this is a church, and hopefully this is a church that, will, that worships the Redeemer. The point is come inside because we want to get your eyes off the sign and get your eyes on the Savior. We want to come in here with the body of Christ. We're going to worship the Savior together. So come on in here. And so today, we're going to read about another sign performed by Jesus, documented in John's gospel. And it's an amazing sign of healing, but it's not about the sign. Ultimately, the sign is pointing us to something greater and something more important. So here's the big idea today of the sermon in one sentence. Believe in Jesus, the Son of God and the giver of eternal life. That's where we're going. That's where this text is going today. And nobody should be surprised that that's the title of a sermon in church, hopefully. And we're going to do it in three parts. We're going to start by looking at the sign. Then we're going to talk about the direction. Where is the sign pointing us? And finally, what is our final destination? And so as we get ready to jump into the text here, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be able to gather here, Lord, and even this week, Lord, I was just so reminded how awesome you have been at work in so many ways for us to have this place where we can meet, Father. But we don't want to come here just to have fun and get together and have a nice place to meet. We want to be here because we want to meet you. Lord, we want this to be about your glory. And so as we get into the word today, Lord, do the work that only you can do in our hearts today, Father. Lord, more of you, less of me. May I get out of the way, Lord. May your word do the work today here. And Father, we lift this up in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so let's get our eyes on the text. John 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, 
in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before him, before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And there is the sign. So if you're taking notes, that's the sign, the healing of the man at the pool. Now, let's go back and let's get ourselves there for a minute and look at some details of what's happening here. So we're going to go to that point. So, so John starts by setting the context. They're in Jerusalem, and there's a feast of the Jews. So there's people gathered in Jerusalem, and Jesus is coming for this feast. And he locates us at a pool. He said there's a pool near the sheep gate. The sheep gate was literally the gate near the temple where the sheep would enter into that would eventually be used to sacrifice in the temple. And around this pool is these five roofed colonnades. I'm not even sure if I say that, that word right. But it's, think of a, it's columns. It's a roofed area. It's kind of like a covered porch area. So people could sit there and be out of the elements around this pool. And he says that in this area, there were a multitude of invalids. And I don't want to get caught up in that word. That's the ESV's English translation of a Greek word that generally means people who are disabled. And John then defines exactly what some of these ailments were. He said some of these people were blind, some were lame, some were paralyzed. These are people with serious ailments that are scattered around this area, around this pool. And now John is going to focus in on one individual among this multitude, in particular, this man in verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, I want to pause there, and I want to, let's get there, okay? He shares that bit of information very specifically. He wants us to feel the weight of how long this man has suffered, and we don't know exactly what was wrong with him, but we'll see in a minute, it's difficult for him to even move around on his own. So this is significant. In 38 years, there's many of you in this room not even 38 years old yet. And in fact, this is longer than the lifespan of many people at that time. This man has suffered a long time. And so now enter Jesus into this scene. And you can imagine Jesus, maybe his disciples are with him, and he's, he's, he's stepping through and making his way through this crowd of people with various elements near this pool. And he's going to zero in on one man in particular. Verse 6 says, when Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had already been there for a long time, Jesus knows how long this man has suffered. He's going to look him in the eye, and he asks him a very interesting question. Do you want to be healed? And I say that's an interesting question because doesn't it seem obvious? Like we expect a resounding yes, but his response is just as interesting. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So apparently, there was a belief that this pool here had healing powers. And so whenever the water would be stirred, and we don't know exactly how it was stirred, maybe there was a spring that fed into that, but whenever the water stirred, there was this belief, if whoever's the first one in 
is going to be healed. And so rather than answer Jesus' question, the man instead kind of offers almost an excuse as to why I haven't been healed yet. He's like, I, I can't get down there. Also important to note here that, Jesus, that he doesn't seem to know who Jesus is. He doesn't recognize that Jesus, who Jesus is, he doesn't even recognize him as somebody who could possibly heal him. All he sees is maybe a guy that could help him get to that water sooner. His focus is still on the water. And, and this stands, this example, this sign stands in sharp contrast to what we talked about last week. If you remember last week, there was a, a desperate father whose son was dying. And that father was so desperate to go to Jesus, he walks 15 miles just to beg Jesus to come back and heal his son. In this case, um, it's very different. He doesn't, he doesn't seek out Jesus. He doesn't even recognize who Jesus is. So what's Jesus do? Does he wait for him to kind of say that he has faith or he believes? No. Here's what Jesus does in verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Immediately... Through the power of his word, he just tells the man, get up. And immediately, he's healed. And this is now the third sign that John has shared with us in his gospel. And as amazing as this sign is, and as amazing as this healing is of a man who had been lame for 38 years, we remember this is a sign, and it means the sign is pointing us to something different. It's pointing us to something greater than just this healing. So let's find out where it's pointing Let's go back to verse 9. I'm going to reread that. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And so now we find out this day was the Sabbath, and the Jews are worked up about what has just happened. And when it says the Jews, it's specifically talking about the Jewish leaders of that time, the local Jewish leaders, and they are hot. And it's such an interesting scene. It's almost like they don't even care that the guy got healed. They're not even mentioning that. What they're worried about is he picked up his bed. I'm guessing they knew this man has been here for a while. It's 38 years. This man is healed, and all they care about is like, you can't do it. It's a Sabbath. You can't pick up your bed and walk. Now, let's be clear. The man had not violated anything from the Old Testament about work done on the Sabbath. What he had violated was man-made Jewish traditions that tried to define what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And one of those traditions was you can't pick up an object and move it from one domain to another on the Sabbath. That would be considered work. And so they're focused on that right now. And they're like, you can't do that. And he said, wait, wait, he deflects it. It's, it's the guy that healed me, he's the one that told me to do this. So like, who healed you? And we see in verse 13, he doesn't know. Because Jesus, because of the crowd, Jesus has gotten out of there. And he doesn't know. But Jesus is getting ready to change that. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And so you read that. So now Jesus has revealed himself to that. And, and you read this, and, and I tend to wonder, like, okay, is this man saved now? 
Does this man believe? And again, I go back to last week's story. Remember the desperate father who comes to find Jesus and beg him to come to his son. And, and then in faith, Jesus said, go, your son will be well. In faith, the man walks back, trusting Jesus at his word, finds out that his son is healed. It says he and all his household believed. It's a beautiful story. We don't see that here. It's, it's not clear from the text. And it doesn't appear to be, that's not, that doesn't appear to be John's focus. What John is telling us, that this man now knows that it's Jesus, and he can now reveal that to the authorities, and that's exactly what he does. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And so we see here, Jesus has been very intentional about not only healing this man on the Sabbath, but he was very intentional about the command that he gave the man. Remember, he told him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And so it's not like Jesus later was in the temple and his disciples come up and say, man, did you hear the word? Like, the, the, the Jews are all over that guy. Like, you shouldn't have had him do that. There's all kind of stuff going on. He's like, oh, I shouldn't have had him pick up his bed. That was a, that was a mistake. Like, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He gave him that command because he knew that was going to cause a stir because he's got something to tell him. He's like, this sign is pointing somewhere. And at this point, Jesus could have gotten into a theological discussion with them. When they confront him, he could have said, come on, this ain't work. Like, picking up your bed, really? The guy, 38 years, he's lame. Let him pick up his bed. Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, what he does is he says two things to the Jewish leaders here that's going to blow their minds. Verse 17, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So now we're told by John, for the very first time, the Jews are seeking to kill him. And why are they seeking to kill him? This is because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, and he was making himself equal with God. And so where do they get that? Because you don't read in the text, you're like, I, I don't see Jesus saying he's equal with God. Well, here's where they get it. It's what he says in verse 7. He says two things. The first thing he says is, my father. Now, we hear that today, and we just think, oh, yeah, I pray to my father all the time. That was significant, okay? It was very personal and very exclusive, what he was saying. A good Jew at that time would never say that. would say, our father, maybe. The, the Jewish leaders knew exactly what he was saying. The way that he said that, the expression he said, he was saying, I'm equal with God. The relationship I have with him is special. And then he says, not only that, but he says, my father... Where am I at? My father is working until now, and I am working. Okay? In other words, I know it's the Sabbath, and I know that was work. And just like my father can work on the Sabbath because he created the Sabbath, I also have authority to work on the Sabbath, and that's exactly what I did. That is a huge claim. He's claiming equality with God and the authority to work on the Sabbath. So now we're beginning, this, this direction that he's pointing is beginning to take shape for us. And where he's pointing to is this. This is the direction that Jesus is the Son of God, and as such, he is equal with God. And so 
let's, let's just review what we know so far that supports this. First of all, we know that Jesus has the authority to heal a physical body just like God does because he just did it. And we also know that Jesus has the authority to work on the Sabbath just like God does. And he also is going to refer to God as his own personal father. This is a clear claim to being equal with God, and now they want to kill him for it. And so the heat is up here. I mean, at this point, Jesus could say, okay, I've said enough, made my point, they're riled up, I better go step aside for a little bit, let it cool down a little bit, but he doesn't. That's not what he wants to do. He's going to amp it up here. He's going to raise the heat, and he's getting ready to say some more things to them. Let's look at what he says, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show them, so that you may marvel. And so those two verses are just such a personal statement about this precious relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son. And you can almost picture a young Jesus growing up in the household of Joseph and learning the trade of carpentry as an apprentice to his earthly father. You can almost see Joseph there teaching Jesus, and Jesus is using the same picture with his heavenly father, this very personal relationship of God the Father and Jesus the Son. By this point, the Jewish leaders are just like steaming, but he's not done. He's got more to say. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This is significant. He's like, you know that God is the only one who has the power to raise the dead. God takes dead things and make them alive. Guess what? I have the authority to do the exact same thing. I can give life to whom I will. That's a clear claim to deity, to equality with God. But he's not done. He's got another one. 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Again, he's like, you guys know your Old Testament. You know that God is the judge of the world. Guess what? God has given all authority to judge to me. It's a clear claim of deity and equality with God. And he's not done yet. He finishes with this, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. He's saying the honor that is due to God, the worship that is due to God, I am worthy of that same honor. I am worthy of worship. And in fact, whoever does not honor the Son, he said, whoever does not honor me, you have dishonored the Father. And so at this point, Jesus has performed a sign. And he did it on a very intentional day. And he did it in a very intentional way so that he could very intentionally point to himself as the promised Messiah, as the Son of God, who has the power to judge and the power to heal and the power to give life. That's a big claim. And so why, seeing these words of Jesus, seeing what he's saying, why is it so crucial for us to see these words and to believe what he says. 
Well, it's leading us to the destination, and we see that in verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And there it is. That's our destination. That's where this is pointing, eternal life. And look what he says here. Whoever hears my word and, and what's the word he says? Whoever hears my word and believes, believes. Not whoever hears my word and then says, okay, I really got to start working hard to please the Lord. And, and, and I need to start living better. And I, I probably need to get to church. And I need to start serving in kids' ministry. You should do that. <laughs> Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Don't miss that word has. That is a now promise, not a future promise. Not, oh, someday I hope to have eternal life. No. Whoever believes that God has sent Jesus as his son has from that moment forward eternal life. Jesus healed a man with his word, and Jesus can give life to us with his word. He finishes by saying, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The one who believes does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is a present promise, not a future promise. So Jesus has just told us these truths. He has the authority to judge. He has the authority to give life. He's promised that if we hear his words and believe by the power of his word in God, that God sent him, then we have passed from death to eternal life. And that is a miracle. Okay, the healing of the man was amazing, but this is the miracle. And, if, and, and so this sign, Jesus has performed the sign at the pool. It's pointing to himself as the son of God. He's got the authority to give eternal life by the power of his word. And so some of you in here today would absolutely say, yes, yes, praise the Lord. I have believed in Jesus. I am a follower of Jesus and praise the Lord for that. That is a miracle that he did at some point in your life. But I have a couple of questions for you today. If you find yourself in that place, I have a few things. Given all that we just saw that Jesus said about himself, a couple of questions for you to think about this week as you're reflecting on this text. The first question is this. Have you lost the awe of who he is and the authority of who he is? Have you just lost the awe of what he claims about himself? Second question is this. Have you become complacent and lazy in your obedience to him? having forgotten the absolute miracle that he took you from being spiritually dead to alive eternally? And then finally, have you stopped taking time to read his word? I mean, there's power in his word to cherish the fact that everybody has a copy of this and we can just open it up and just spend time with him. Let's just remind ourselves of that. Remind ourselves of the gospel. Let's rehearse that with ourselves to believe what Jesus has said about himself, to remember what Jesus did for us, and then to live like it. To just soak yourself in God's word, to believe what he says, and to remind yourself of who he is and the authority that he has, and remind yourself how deeply you are loved by him, which he displayed for you so clearly by going to a cross 
and taking the punishment on your behalf to satisfy forever God's righteous wrath so you might have eternal life in his name. We need to remind ourselves of that regularly. Now, some of you here and some of you maybe watching online find yourself saying, I am a believer. I believe in the Lord. I'm a follower of Jesus. But you hear a story like this of the healing of this man, and you hear a story like last week, the healing of the of this official son. And your question is this, why hasn't Jesus healed me? Or maybe why didn't Jesus heal my spouse or my child or my friend? If Jesus has the power to heal, why am I still suffering? I want to go back to the early part of this text and review something that John tells us, an important detail. John tells us that in this pool, there was a multitude of invalids there. And so again, Jesus is there, and he's probably stepping among many, many people with serious ailments. And Jesus focuses in on one man, a man who did not seek him, and a man who made no statement of faith in him. And Jesus healed him, and Jesus didn't heal the others. Now, there's some of you in here that are like, you have an amazing story of God's healing, and praise the Lord for that. I think of Kevin Adams, our director in kids' ministry. Many of you know his story, amazing story of absolute miraculous healing in his life. But still, many more of you would say, God just hasn't healed yet, or God didn't heal. And so, rather than me offering up some kind of um, empty words of comfort, let's go to God's Word. And I wanted to share something that Paul wrote. And Paul was a man very, very familiar with suffering and trials. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn was. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so, just like the desperate father from last week that walks 15 miles just for a chance to beg Jesus to come to his son, we should never stop begging the Lord to heal. We should never stop calling out to him in prayer and never stop believing that he indeed has the power to heal. But sometimes God's answer to our faithful prayers of healing is not yet. Now, Jen Wilkerson is a member at Doxa Bible Church. She's a faithful follower of Jesus. She's also a paraplegic for 22 years following an auto accident. And she's written a lot about her walk with the Lord and her experiences and the journey that her and her husband Rick have been on. And I want to share with you just a couple of things that she wrote. In reflecting on her paralysis, she says this, I have had to confront my purposes in life and realize God's purposes instead. I've had to realize there is something much bigger than myself going on here, and although the present earth is the only reality we've known, the future eternity is vastly more important. And then in speaking of God's sovereignty and healing, she adds this, God does not answer to anybody and has the right due to his very nature, to work in our lives in any way he chooses. 
Our need might be for salvation or just a closer walk with him. But he always has our very best in mind, drawing us near to himself. And then I want to just add a promise from God's word. We'll find it at the end of our Bible in Revelation, also written by John. This is a promise that we have. John has been given a vision of the final resurrection, and he says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen to that, right? God will heal those who believe. Maybe now, but ultimately, he will heal in the final resurrection to come. And we will have eternity to enjoy the freedom from the things that have ailed us on this earth. And so finally, some of you here today would say, you know what, I'm not there with Jesus. I've never come to believe in him as this, as, as what's been presented here. And um, some of you know that. Some of you are like, no, just, just not there yet. Some of you maybe are there and not even know it. Maybe like, I've been in church for a while, but I'm not sure if I've ever really come to a full belief in what Jesus has claimed about himself. You know, maybe you're just a little more comfortable with a Jesus who's a little bit lesser than God, not God himself. Maybe on the levels of a, a Gandhi or, or a Confucius or something like that. Well, I want to remind you why John wrote this gospel and why he included this sign. John said this. Let's put on the screen. John 20. He says, these are written, okay, these signs, this sign today is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote this for you. He wanted you to hear this. And so my question for you today, my challenge for you is, what are you going to do with these words of Jesus? What are you going to do with who Jesus claims to be? Because he's calling you to believe in him. And I want to read to you a quote today from C.S. Lewis. And I just think this addresses this issue so well in light of what we just read that Jesus claimed about himself. I mean, Jesus made some audacious claims that we looked at today. So look at what, this is what C.S. Lewis says about this. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would rather be, he would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, see Lewis was right about Jesus here. The claims that, made, that Jesus made about himself were so significant it would lead to his execution. But it was his death on a Roman cross that made a way for you to have life everlasting. 
Because you see, when he went to the cross, he paid the punishment on our behalf that we owe, the punishment that we should have paid because of our sin. He paid it for us. He paid it in full. He satisfied God's righteous wrath forever. If you believe in Jesus, there is no wrath from God left for you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you are declared righteous before God and you're granted eternal life. So Jesus is calling to you today, hear his words and believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can come here today. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, I pray that we'd be encouraged by this, that we would, we would continue to be in awe of what Jesus did for us, Lord. And that would just overflow in our lives and the way we live our lives and the urgency with which we wanna tell others about you, Lord. And for those here today who have not come to that point of belief, Lord, I pray that you'd move in their hearts that they would see that Jesus is indeed who he says he was, the Son of God, and he's here to rescue them from their sin for eternal life, Lord. Do that work in here, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.